just want to say too that it's just a reminder that every single one of the psalms that we've been going through this summer was chosen by you. Remember at the beginning of the summer, we gave you all the opportunity to pick psalms. And it's been such an encouragement to me to, as we listen to the psalms each week, to know that it was coming from one of your hearts, um, a, a place where the Lord had spoken to you particularly. But here now the reading of God's word, Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the people. All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the reading of God's word, amen. Let me pray for us as we begin the sermon this morning. God, we pray you'd teach us from Psalm 44 today. Give us clarity as to your ways and um, spiritual insight to this text. Um, Help us to leave changed and with with more confidence in who you are than, than, than how we came in. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, yeah, like I said, each one of you have, have chosen these psalms. And so I don't know which one of you chose any of them. They were anonymous, but I know Psalm 44 was particularly meaningful to someone a couple of months ago when we chose these psalms. And um, it's a tough psalm. I would say 25 of the 26 verses are, are pretty tough. 
um, but it does end with a resounding, uh, beautiful, hope-filled message at the very end. But as we begin to, to peer into the text, I was, you know, you'll see I, I titled the sermon, The Sleeping God, um, because at the very end, it does mention, you know, this question from, from David, you know, is, is God sleeping? And it got me thinking about sleep in general. And so I just thought I'd ask the question, um, have any of you ever fallen asleep in public? Just been on a train or in school or in church? Uh, just found yourself falling asleep. Um, to be honest, I'm sure I have at some point in my life, but I, I'm kind of terrified of falling asleep in public because I just feel like people are looking at me and I can't look back at them and it just gets me uncomfortable. So I really try my best not to fall asleep in public. Um, but I've had plenty of friends who have not had that same trouble or fear and they just, if they're tired, they just go. They're asleep, they go. I remember in school, that happening often. Um, but I, there's also a sad story I remember of, of some friends who um, were driving to school one morning and there's two brothers and both of them fell asleep, one of them while driving and went down a mountain and by God's grace were not hurt. But being asleep in public for them almost led to a really catastrophic or disastrous Situation. They narrowly avoided it, and they walked away unscathed, fortunately. Um, sleep, sleep is just very important. Uh, I mean, you could look at studies of what sleep does for the health of, your, of yourself um, and the importance of a good night's sleep. Uh, even in just the last few weeks, the, the topic of sleep has come up uh, in, in my circles of people who are having really hard time sleeping at night. So folks that have sleep apnea, for instance, or people that just uh, have a really hard time going to sleep at night, it's almost like their bodies have, have been trained not to sleep well. And I think we, we live in a society too where maybe, maybe sleep is not as high on the, on the priority list as, as it should be. You know, people are very driven and they love to work and get the most out of your days. And so if there's one thing you can cut corners on, maybe it's sleep. And we almost seem to champion people that only get a couple hours of sleep because we say, oh, they're, they're getting the most out of their days. They can function with only a couple hours of sleep and we kind of put them up here. But sleep is very important. Um, but as I mentioned with my friends that fell asleep driving, sleep is important, but only if it's at the right place and at the right time. Oversleeping can make you late to things or cost you a job if it's an interview you're late to or it can just make you groggy and not functioning at your highest. This morning, I think there is a theme we can jump into with regards to spiritual drowsiness and spiritual sleep. Um, and it's one that David is kind of pointing back, pointing the finger back at God and saying, God, are you, are you asleep at the wheel? Are you, are you asleep in public? You know, everybody else is watching you, but you don't seem to be aware of us. At the end of the psalm, that's, that's basically where David is coming to. So what makes us spiritually drowsy and what makes us spiritually awake? That's going to be kind of the theme we're going to jump into this morning as we consider God sleeping, or at least the accusation of God asleep. This morning, I want to just give us a couple of, of ways to navigate through this text in Psalm 44. Um, I'll give you a couple of different points 
but I, I want to begin us by looking at how the psalm begins, which is the first eight verses of, of David basically recounting the story of history. So we sang the song at the beginning of the service, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, uh, which is a, a very traditional hymn that's been sung for hundreds of years, but it's, it's, it was particularly chosen this morning because of the point I'm about to make, which is the fact that we are part of a bigger story. We are part of a beautiful grand narrative in life that has a beginning and has an end, and we are in the story. God's story. God's story of creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And we are marching towards an end. And David here at the beginning of this psalm points out that there is, there, there is a story that we are part of. Um, and it just got me thinking about the power of, of story in general. Um, you know, there's a reason that Netflix is so popular. And it's because they tell compelling stories. And you can find thousands of them continually, just the stories that we can get caught up in. I was even looking this week, I don't think I'm going to read the whole thing today, but um, I got looking this, this week at Native American stories, kind of these old folk tales of how, how they see the origin of all things beginning, or just kind of these little pithy um, folk legends that they tell. And they're really catchy, but as I was reading them, again, I, I think I'm going to decide not to read this one in full this morning, but one that I was reading particularly, um, I, I, was, I was caught by how the stories kind of end abruptly. There's kind of a compelling start, kind of a humorous part in the middle, but then it kind of ends abruptly, almost with no purpose or, fin or like finality to it. They just kind of end. And I read three or four different ones and they kind of had the same feeling. They left you feeling a little empty at the end, almost like they didn't have the answer to how the story is supposed to end. It just kind of stopped. And yet the story that David is telling here, you begin, look at verse one. It says, oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. He's saying, he's looking back at what his father and grandfather and all of his uh, people and his family and in, in the Jewish nation have told the story of what God has done throughout history. Think about the stories of creation and Noah and the ark and uh, the exodus and the, the period of the judges, all these just amazing instances of how God cared for his people, how he was with them in ages past, back then. David points back and says, you were with us then. We see it. I've heard the stories. But you can kind of hear, even as he's faithfully recounting how God was with them, you can hear the, but where are you now? Where are you today? I don't see you here. The story that David recounts is a story of God who in verse two liberates his people, who brings freedom to those who are enslaved, who in verse three, it says that he delights in his people. He, he liberates them because he delights in them. In verse four, it says his story is one where he is the one overarching true king. He is the, he is the main character of the story. And in verses five to seven, he is one that saves his people by his, by his undeserved grace. You know, it says 
you know, we don't, we don't trust in our own bows, nor can our own sword save us, but it's God who saves us. It's his grace. It's his mercy. It's his saving power that saves us. And then in verse eight, his story is one that, that when we see that, the liberation, the delight, the, the true king, the saving by his grace, because of that in verse eight, it says, we can give praise to you. We will boast of your, of your story, boast of what you're doing in our life. It's because of those things that you've done in the past. We see all that. We see that story unfolding. That's, that's the story that David was seeing. That's the story that Israel was experiencing. And that's the story that you and I also look back on. We read the same scriptures that they were reading. And we see a God who is good to his people. Right? Yet... Why do we feel sometimes like it's not happening today? I'm sure you've asked that question. I'm sure you read through the Old Testament sometimes and you say, this happened thousands of years ago. It's a great story. God's right hand, that's the metaphor. You saved us by your strong right hand. I see that at work in the scriptures, but I struggle to see it today. God, show me, where are you? But let's just pause for a moment And just be with David in these first eight verses and remember that we are part of a big, beautiful story that God has shown himself faithful in. And if you read to the very end, we know how the story ends in Revelation 21 and 22. Creation leads to new creation. And there is a hopeful, beautiful end. There is a hope that burns within my heart. That's what we just sang. That's because we see how the story ends. So that's how we start when we think about the sleeping God. There's a big, beautiful story we're a part of. Now, secondly, the most, the the heart of this text is verses 9 to 25, which is, I mean, you heard maybe as I was, I tried to read it and so you could feel the shift in verse 9. But you have rejected us, but you have disgraced us. The key word there is but. It's a transition from, I know the story we've been told, but but I feel like that's not happening for us. I feel like I'm disgraced. I feel like I'm rejected. And so the second point I just wanna make is that our experience within that big grand story that I'm assured that we're part of, again, this is the story that we're part of, that we're marching in. Our experience within that story though should be an honest experience. The value of honesty in life is very important, and especially as we think about the most important things in life, which are our destiny and our purpose. We should be honest about how we experience our questioning or our doubts or our pain or our certainty of those things. And so our experience of the story should be honest, and David is really good at it. If you read the Psalms, David is very honest. He's very good at just expressing his true emotions. And that's the beauty of the Psalms that you just get unfiltered honesty from most of the Psalm writers. But just think about why honesty is so important in life. If if you're not honest, then it's hard to make any progress with anything. You know, it's not easy. It's not easy being honest to share your true feelings or emotions. I mean, if you're married or if you have children, to be honest in those relationships uh, it's constructive, but it's also it can be very difficult because it, 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 can, it can be a hard first thing to overcome. Honesty, though, reflects a contentment 
in life and whatever follows after that. So when you're honest about something, that means that you're content to say that whatever follows that, even if it's an uncomfortable conversation or an uncomfortable admission or even an expression of doubt or fear, that you're trusting that, you'll, that what comes after that is going to be better than if you hit it, right? Because the opposite of honesty is hiding. And so if you hide something, then you're just saying, I'm content with keeping things as they are. Honesty is a necessary step to real authentic faith because without honesty, we are just deceiving ourselves. We're just holding something in and deceiving ourselves. And so I'm asking you, are you truly honest in how you're experiencing the story of God, the story of redemption, your, your experience within the big story? Are you being honest with, with God in prayer about how it's going? Because David is, and he's saying, God, it's not going well. I feel disgraced. And he's honestly opening that up to God. Has God been awake in your life? Or have you felt like God is asleep in your life? Be honest with that. David, in these verses, so remember those five things I just gave you in the first part of what the story of God is? Freedom for his people. He delights in his people. He's the one true king. Saves people by his grace. He's forever worthy of our praise. Those are the five true things about the story of God that David admits at the beginning. But he also gives five categories of his honest experience of how that's going. Let me just give you those within the second part here. The story that many of us feel and experience and that David was experiencing is more like this. Verses 9 to 12, he feels rejected by God. He feels like God has abandoned him. He even says, you've made us like sheep for the slaughter. That's a pretty harsh statement. He doesn't hold back. He said he feels rejected by God. Secondly, verses 13 to 16, he feels like he's receiving taunting from others. So because of his faith, because of believing in God, he says, verse 13, you have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. He, he says, we feel like a laughing stock, a byword. Shame has covered our face. Um, he said, you know, we're not, we're not receiving you know, liberation. We're receiving taunting. We feel enslaved by or beat down by what others are saying about us. Thirdly, verse 17 to 21, um, he's expressing confusion, frankly. He says, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. He said, we have not been false to your covenant. Um, there's definitely places in the Old Testament where that's not the case, where Israel has been false to the covenant. But I, I believe David here with what he's saying, that generally speaking, he's saying, we've been, we've been listening to you, God. And yet I'm confused because things seem not to be going well. Wouldn't it make sense that if we were faithful to your covenant, that things would be going well for us? Why? So he's expressing this spiritual confusion in 17 to 21. And he even says in verse 20, he's like, if we had forgotten your name, you would know it, right? You know our hearts, God. He knows the secrets of our heart. And so he's just confused. Fourthly, verse 22 he just gets to this dark place of being fatalistic and saying, 
Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's like, our destiny is bleak. If this is how it's going to be, God, I'm just fatalistic and saying it's probably going to end badly. And it's dark. And then the last thing, verses 23 to 25, the fifth thing is he questions God. Why are you sleeping? Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Three big questions. And in the middle of that, he's calling God to wake up. Wake up, God. Stop sleeping. Wake up. I know you're there. He's not questioning if God is real. He's just questioning if God is active, if he's present. And so, again, for the purposes of this sermon, the first big part is the beautiful story that we know that we trust in, that we believe in, that David acknowledges and the experience of it in the middle of life when things are hard. And I think there's a parallel there. Five, five true parts of the, of the beautiful story, five honest experiences of how we go through life. Is God sleeping? Sleep is a sign either of just being lazy or aloof, of I'm just going to sleep 14 hours a day like a 14-year-old on a Saturday morning. Or sleep can be a sign of ultimate power and control through rest. Is God lazy and aloof? Or is he ultimately showing his power and control through being the God who is at rest? Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills for where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. In Genesis chapter two, after God created the earth, and created everything, put everything into motion. The first six days, Genesis 2-2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work, all the work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The sleeping God is the God who is fully at rest with the creation that he has put into motion. He is content because he is in power, he is in control. He actually set up the world so that he can rest while being in control. Not sleep lazily or aloofly or like the kid in the fourth grade classroom that just is tired of hearing about mathematics, God is active yet rested. And to give us a beautiful example, I want to look at the person of Jesus, Mark chapter four. It's this beautiful story of, of Jesus. He's just done this amazing work of God on the land. And then he says, hey, disciples, let's get on the boat and cross to the other side. So he takes his disciples, they get on a boat and they begin to cross the the sea. And this is what it says. 
Mark 4, 35 to 41. It says, on that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him as well. And you know what happens next. A great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So again, kind of like David, you know, David's going through a challenge in Psalm 44. He's like, things are going terribly. There's all this clutter and chaos and derision and scorn and I'm feeling forsaken. And then here are the disciples. They're in a literal boat and there's a literal storm and they're going all over the place and they're feeling it. They're feeling the waves rocking them, not metaphorically, really feeling it. Verse 38, but Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Jesus was sound asleep on the cushion. The God who sleeps, right? And they woke him up and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus woke up and rebuked the wind and said, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus, asleep on the cushion in the midst of a storm, has to be waked up by his disciples to calm the storm. And what I want to point out here is that the disciples don't say at the end, can you believe that Jesus was asleep on the cushion? Was, was their emphasis on Jesus sleeping on the cushion and they're like being astounded by that? No, their emphasis was on, can you believe that Jesus just calmed the storm? Can you believe that Jesus just did that? They, they did not care anymore that Jesus was asleep. In fact, that probably increased their faith in him to see that Jesus was so in control, so authoritative, so content, so at peace, that he could actually sleep through that. And it, wouldn't it be a great question to know that if they had let Jesus stay asleep, would they have gotten through it? Because it does seem to imply here, when Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? That does seem to imply that Jesus was in control of the storm even while they were sleeping. Yet they woke him up and he calmed the storm anyway because he's a God of grace and compassion. And he answered their cry for help. But it's a question for us too of when the storms are in, coming in our own life. Yes, we can wake God up and say, God, wake up into action. Rouse yourself, come up. Or we also can wait and trust that God is in control. That he's resting and it may appear that he's sleeping, but he's actually just sovereignly, deeply in control. Asleep on the cushion, yes, but even more importantly, he's with us on the boat. Jesus was not taking a, a fancy yacht in front of them, you know, and leaving them to the ringy dingy boat. He was with them on their boat, going through the trial with them. God is with us in the storm. And so that leads to the, the final point for us, which is, you know, I joke, my wife joked this week, uh, we were talking about this text and we said, we need to just post it on the wall. Just, you know, paint it on, literally paint this on our wall. And we might, who knows? 
Verse 26, rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The last point here is that God's love changes everything. His steadfast love for his people changes everything. That when you experience and you know the steadfast love of the Lord, it will change everything. It will change your perception of the story that you're in. It will remind you that you're part of this bigger story, that God's love is sustaining you through the story of life. His steadfast love changes everything. His steadfast love here is one Hebrew word that comes up throughout the Old Testament that is a powerful word. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And it has these different components. It's more than just Valentine's Day love that we experience today. It's, I would say, at least four things. It's God's covenant faithfulness displayed in kindness and grace. Four things. Covenant, faithfulness, kindness, grace. All four of those things mark up this one Hebrew word that the English translators just use steadfast love. It's the best way they can try to capture, capture it in a short phrase. God's steadfast love means that he is faithful to his covenant to us in kindness and in grace. What does that do for your soul as you hear that said aloud? God is faithful to his covenant to us in kindness and in grace. We are not forgotten God remembers his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that comes all the way to us through Jesus. He has not forgotten us. He's faithful to his covenant. It will come to pass. And he displays it to us in deep kindness and in grace, in this undeserved mercy. His love shown towards you is God's ultimate aim in life. He wants you to know that love, to experience it, to trust in it. And really the only thing we need to do then is just be like David and throw up those three prayers. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us. Because we know that you're faithful to your steadfast love to us. These prayers are ultimately expressions of faith and not doubt. And seeing God's love to us in all things. I just want to close with this story um, about God's love, you know, because I think that's, that's, that's unsurprising to you, I'm imagining, that God's love changes everything. That is, that is a message that's got out there, which is good. That God's love for you does change the whole narrative of how you view life and your purpose and the destiny that you have in life. And it changes how we understand our circumstances. If we can trust and remember that God loves us, that he's faithful to his covenant, then that, that puts us at a place of contentment. Let me just tell you this story. I, I may have shared this at some point in the last year or two, but you've probably forgotten because it's been a long time. Um, but it's a story from a, a missionary who was serving in Africa in the early 1900s. And he came to one of the chiefs of a, of a village that was known for cannibalism. So it was a very, uh, you know, kind of extreme tribe that uh, had cannibalistic uh, practices. And they had, they had recently captured and eaten 14 native porters in their village. So they were, they were intense, needless to say. Um, but this missionary went to the village and shared about the love of Jesus, about his steadfast love for all people. 
And when the wife of the chief heard for the first time of the great love of God and the God who is love, she said, quote, I have always said that there should be a God like that. I've always said that there should be a God like that. We want a God who is loving, who's faithful, who's kind, who's gracious. Our soul deep within us longs for that to be true. And it is. In the person of Jesus, we see it so clearly displayed for us. And it does come back to the story, the story that we're part of, that David begins with in verses one to eight, the story that you and I are part of, that if we are captured by the story, from creation to new creation, with redemption right in the middle, where Jesus died on the cross and rose on the third day, then that story of redemption will fuel us to live a life of faithfulness, knowing that we know the end of the story, that all things will be made new and be made right. And so that whatever circumstances we're experiencing today are just part of the progression and the unveiling of that grand story, teaching us to be more faithful, more obedient, more trusting, more content in God's purposes. And on the, so I'll finish with on the front of the bulletin is a, is a quote uh, emphasizing just that point. It's by this writer, Francis Spufford, and it says, we don't have an argument that solves the problem of a cruel world. You know, you can't, you can't logically deduce the, the, the cruel world for what it is, but we do have a story. We have a story that we can see of a God who inserts himself into humanity's life and redeems them and is making all things new. Let me close us in prayer. God, thank you for being just amazingly in control, so in control that sometimes it it can feel to us like like you're asleep or that, that you're drowsy, but it's actually us it's actually us who are drowsy. It's actually us who are not awakened to the, to the reality that you're at work, that you're active, that you're, you're with us. You're with us in the boat. And it's because of your steadfast love, you are continually with us. So Lord, just help us to remember that this week. Help us to remember that all the days of our life. Help us to encourage one another to remember that, that the story is not over, that there is a, a good ending to all this. Help us to trust in you, to have faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.